All right, amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We come to you in faith, trusting, building our life upon you. Lord, we now pray that we would see your glory. We pray that your truth would set us free as we get into your word. We ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would illuminate your truth to us, that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray that we as receivers of your word would do our part, that we would be looking for you in anticipation, that our hearts would be ready to receive all that you have for us, Lord. We pray that we wouldn't leave here the same. We pray that your word would transform us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, before you sit down, can you say hello to someone, please? All right, everybody, come on in, have a seat. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. I hope uh, the Lord is leading and directing you and blessing your life. This morning, uh, we have a few announcements before we get into the Word. If you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 9, start getting ready for that. And while you're doing that, just give you a few announcements here. So, women's ministry is not meeting tomorrow. Um, so, they'll be meeting the week after. They'll be on break tomorrow. Also, um, Wednesday night, as we're working our way through the book of First Corinthians, we've uh, come upon a, a section of Scripture that I think is very important for our whole church to get a hold of and to understand, and we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, which has to do with the spiritual gifts, and that seems like a, an area that's always a, a point of contention and confusion within the body of Christ, and so I encourage you all to come out for that. Um, what are the spiritual gifts? How are they to be used? Are they still in effect Today, are there certain gifts that don't exist today? It's interesting because uh, the Apostle Paul starts off 1 Corinthians uh, Corinthians chapter 12 saying, I don't want you to be ignorant about these things. And if you look at the things in the Bible where you see that phrase, I don't want you to be ignorant about something, uh, they're typically in regards to the things that cause the most controversy within the church. So interesting, huh? So... Uh, so that's Wednesday night. We're going to set out to uh, tackle those issues. And then um, and um, wanted to just comment a little bit on our event that we had yesterday. So we had a big event that, uh, that we've been gearing up for, praying about. Um, it was an event called Faith and the Blue. It's a national campaign that the police department, uh, our police department had uh, joined in on to where they want to connect the police department with the faith communities in their local uh, communities. And so they asked us to host Chile with the chaplains. And um, we held it here. And the first thing I would say is uh, it was so much of a hit that the police officers were telling me over and over again what a blessing it was. They were they were, they would literally say, we're completely blown away. And so that was, uh, yeah, 
And that, that was our goal, is just to, to bless them. And I had mentioned before that there are other faith communities in our community that didn't want them around or to be a part, uh, very uninviting to them. And so it was important to me and important to you that we show that we do support their efforts. We do appreciate having a safe community. And we want them to know the Lord, too. And so uh, I've gotten to know uh, some of the police officers even a little better, especially um, police officers that, that was orchestrating the event. And so I got to work a lot with him and uh, start to understand a little bit more about uh, where he's coming from and his faith and things like that. And so we want to be a place that's an open door for our police department right across the street to feel welcome and at home. And uh, a lot of times uh, that community uh, feels very guarded and uh, not open to sharing and things like that. And so um, may that be a reminder just to keep them in prayer and that we would be as a community that would continue to reach out as a, a faith community. So uh, it was a success. It was a hit. All those who've served, it was a team effort. So many people were involved in helping and just showing up. So um, I want to thank you all for that. It's, it's really weird for me and awkward because I get all the credit and I didn't do anything. <laughs> and it's, I, I don't like that, you know. I, I want our church fellowship to get the credit because ultimately I just want the Lord to get credit. And so I, I, I try to make a point to them of, just saying, look, I didn't do anything. I didn't make the chili. I tasted it. <laughs> so if you want to give me credit for that. But um, Chris and Ann, really, uh, man, they did it so much. that, Yeah. So thank you guys for using your gifts. Um, and not only did uh, Chris make the award-winning first-place chili. Yes. So we did win. And, uh, you know, I was, I was kind of joking that, you know, we wanted to win, but it did feel good to win, but <laughs> that wasn't the main point, but I did like winning, so. And then, um, and made those boards, and they were very, uh, very impressive, very elaborate, and um, just, it just took a whole team, and, and that's what it takes, the body of Christ, is just everybody serving, using their gifts, working together, and um, not, not only that, just showing up, just showing up meant a lot. So I made a, a few pleas over the previous weeks of just showing up, and it meant a lot to them for you to show up and to talk to them and to interact with them. So praise the Lord for that. It could not have gone any better, and to God be the glory for that. So thank you for that. And I, it just encouraged me so much um, just to see and watch all that went on. is very encouraging to me. So let's see. Um, one last thing that I want to comment on. We have communion today, by the way, too. So just keep that in mind and prepare your heart for that. But, uh, you know, as we're getting ready for the chili cook-off. And then I started getting um, these uh, texts about what was going on over in Israel and um, a lot of you know Israel is very uh, dear to my heart and a lot of your hearts. 
the nation of Israel. And we have an Israeli flag in our lobby because in Genesis 12.3, it says that God will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. And that was an everlasting covenant that he gave to Abraham. So it means that that still exists. And, um, you know, a lot of the things that uh, hopefully you didn't see too much on social media, I unfortunately saw more than I'm happy to have seen. Um, the images, the videos were all just pure evil. And it's a reminder that we need to continue to pray for Israel. A lot of the stuff that you, you saw was, we, some of you here just a few months ago were walking in those very places that people were being kidnapped, shot at, and bombed. We were walking in those very exact same places. And so it, it hits home like that. Um, a lot of you know, if you don't, we uh, support Pastor Brian McDaniel, who's a, a missionary to Haiti. And uh, the most Pastor Brian thing I could ever think of is he's scheduled and on his way to Israel right now and didn't cancel his trip to Israel while they're in war. So that's the most Pastor Brian thing I could ever think of. So he has planned this trip to go to Israel. Uh, it's been over a year and everything broke out and they're on their way to Israel right now. And they're going into a war zone because... Since, for the first time since 1973, the Yom Kippur War, Israel has actually declared they're in war. They have declared war. So um, there's a lot of things prophetically in play. Uh, I don't want to, you know, get into that uh, too much this morning because we do have uh, some things to look at in the book of Luke. But uh, just something to keep in mind about that part of the end time scenario is that there will be nations that will be comprised of Russia, Iran, and Turkey primarily, but a coalition of nations that will invade Israel in the last days. Um, Turkey is always seems like they're very on the brink of wanting to attack Israel. Uh, Russia, of course, is in the Ukrainian war, and their resources are being depleted. Israel has a lot of oil, especially off their coast, which would be very interesting. And uh, maybe the hook that Ezekiel 38 says will draw Russia in, but Iran, who is the sponsor of this latest attack on Israel, they are also a big player. Those are the three main players that we find in Ezekiel 38. So just something to keep an eye on and something to be uh, concerned about in a way where you're praying. Not worried, but praying, keep your eyes on the prize, keep your eyes on understanding the events of the world and really what they're all leading to. So let's pray for Israel, and I actually just like to do that right before we start this morning with all of you, and then we'll get into the message this morning. And so Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you, and uh, we have uh, dear, dear brothers and sisters in Israel and uh, just uh, hard to imagine what they're going through now. Um, I pray for them, that you'd strengthen them, encourage them, bless them, fill them with your Holy Spirit, bring many of them to faith in you. Uh, particularly, Lord, I pray for Eshkar, um, our guide, and um, pray that you would comfort his heart and 
bring a fullness of his faith and relationship to you through this event. And uh, I pray for the bus drivers that we've had, and I pray for uh, those from Pilgrim's Tours that are located in Israel that we've worked with. And um, I pray that you'd watch over them and bring about your plan Give wisdom and discernment uh, to those in charge there. And we pray for the peace of Israel, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles out and I have you draw your attention to the book of Luke, chapter 9, starting in verse 18, as we look at this particular section of Scripture, I wanted to start off by just asking you a question kind of stimulate your thoughts about what we're going to look at this morning and it's this what comes to your mind when you think about God A.W. Tozer the well-known American pastor and author said what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us And I would add that the most important thing about us is what we think about God and what we do with those thoughts about God. Most likely, what we do with those thoughts that we have about God are going to be the result of having the most correct thoughts about God. In other words, if we were to think correctly about God, then there would be a natural byproduct of movement in our life because of what we think about God. What we think about God will define our life. Have you ever thought about that? What we see going on in Israel is a result of what people think about God. Isn't that interesting? So there are some people that are kidnapping, torturing, and raping people, and they're screaming, Allah Akbar, God is great. That's what they think about God. So they're justifying their actions in light of their thoughts about God. And so a big part of our church is to put God's Word front and center so that our thoughts about God will be the most accurate, that they will be right. And that because of our correct thoughts about God, our lives will be driven to God in a decision, first of all, and then a commitment and that commitment would take action. And so in, in our text, what we're actually seeing and what we've seen is we've watched the narrative that Luke lays out for us as we, as we see it develop. We have seen Jesus with his disciples bringing them along in their faith. And the way he's doing that and has been doing that is helping them to have a right understanding of who he he is. 
And as we see the development of their understanding, we actually get to watch it grow. Watch their understanding of who He is grow as we watch that happen. We see that Jesus puts a premium on the correct identification of who He is. In other words, it's, it's not okay to have a general view of Jesus or have a personal view that is not the absolute truth of who He is, but it's my, my personal view of God. Because our personal view of God may be subjective and it really doesn't matter unless we have the right view of God. And so as we have seen Jesus, He's preaching and doing miracles. His disciples are following Him. There's great masses of people also following Him. Some at different levels, various levels of desire of wanting to have Him as their Lord and Savior. Some just interested in the powerful works that He's doing and curious about Him. All these different things. But then Jesus, He takes the twelve a little closer because they would be the ones who needed to really understand who He is because they would further the truth of who He is after he left. And so as he would bring them along in their understanding, he sent them out then finally. There came a point where he said, now you go and do the things that I did. And he empowered them to do the things that he did. They went out to towns and they preached the kingdom of God and they healed. So they personally were experiencing the power of God working through their life. And as they would do that, then they came to a place where Jesus would test them again. These multitudes of people were following Jesus. And the disciples said to send these people home because they needed to eat. And if they didn't get home fast enough, they, they wouldn't have the opportunity to eat. And so they, they weren't saying anything mean or bad like sometimes we think but their identification of God wasn't developed correctly. Their understanding of who He was. So their idea was, it's better to send them all home so they can get something to eat. And Jesus said, you give them something to eat. Why did He do that? He's demonstrating to them now who He was, particularly if He said to do something, then that's all they needed to know and they should do it and obey. Their practical thinking started kicking in. How can we feed them? We only have a small amount of food, and there's thousands of people. This is oftentimes what happens to us when God commands us to do something, and then we start to say, how can I do that? I can't do that. I don't have enough. It's not going to work. And when we do that, we don't, we're, our understanding of God is not fully developed in our life to where if He says something, it is going to happen. That same God who spoke the universe into existence at His command, also at His command now, He will do whatever He commands. So the disciples were learning that. And they were part of Jesus feeding the 
10,000 really. There's 5,000 men, so probably uh, 10 to 20,000 people feeding them all. And then the people, John in John chapter 6, it tells us that the, the, the masses immediately wanted to make Jesus king at that moment. But he didn't come for that. He came to save the lost, and his work wasn't finished yet. And so he left because he didn't want them to be in a position where they're trying to make him king. So he left. He got away, and that's where we pick up this account here. And notice, as he left, it says in verse 18 of Luke 9, it says, It happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. And he asked, him, he asked them, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do the crowds say that I am? This whole account of what is about to happen is greatly enhanced at the realization of where they are. Jesus, as he's getting away from the masses who want to anoint him and make him king. So in a way, they wanted him to have a crown without the cross. They were thinking more temporary than eternal. They were thinking save us here and now in this world without understanding that he came to save eternally and spiritually forever. And so he got away and he went to a place where the Jews would not follow him. It was about 25 miles north of where they were in a place called Caesarea Philippi. What was significant about this place? Some of you were there recently. You can look, go online and look at it. It's an amazing place. And it was a place that its history, in its history, they have had 14 different temples there to different gods. One temple that they had built was to the, to the god Baal, their false god. Another was to their god Pan, which was a half goat, half man god. Uh, another temple that they had built was a temple to Caesar Augustus there. And if you go there, you see all these uh, etched in stone, these relics and places where their icons were. You can stand right where some of those old temples were. And this was the backdrop where Jesus had brought his disciples away from the masses of people, the the masses of Jews would not go here because they consider it desecrated or um, more of a Gentile type of place. So he gets there with his disciples, and what is he doing? He's praying. He's praying alone. What is he doing that for? He's showing his disciples. Remember, Jesus is demonstrating and teaching his disciples both of what they would need to do to live a successful life of faith after he departed. Praying alone was a huge part of that. And when you notice when he prayed alone, it, they were nearby. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he was taken and gone to trial before the cross, it says he was praying alone, but they were nearby. Jesus was praying alone. He's demonstrating the great need for prayer that we all have. He's demonstrating the need for 
getting alone and spending time with the Heavenly Father. He's demonstrating that we must be filled up before we can give out. He's demonstrating that there's a balance between service and devotion. And our devotion life is so important because our ministry life simply comes from our devotional life. And when we don't have a devotional life of spending time with the Lord, it's very difficult to give out what we haven't received. And so Jesus was demonstrating that they need to be alone. They need to pray. They need to seek the Heavenly Father. Do you know the one thing the disciples asked Jesus to teach them? Lord, teach us to pray. Out of all the things that they could have asked, they said, teach us to pray. Why did they say that? Because they saw him praying. And they saw him praying and they wanted to pray like that. They wanted to encounter God like that. They wanted to have intimacy with the Heavenly Father like that. And so as Jesus is praying, he asks his disciples to join him. And then he asks the question. So Jesus is getting somewhere. Jesus is coming to a place where this, you might want to look at this as like this is their final exam. After all the things they've taught, demonstrated, they've seen, uh, you might recall all the, the different accounts and the different times when the disciples would say, who is this man? Who is this that calms the sea and the wind? Who is this? Who is this that can heal diseases? Who is this that claims that he can forgive sins and then demonstrates his power by raising a paralytic from his mat so the paralytic can walk? Who, who is this? Only God can do that. And so their minds are not quite caught up with the truth of who Jesus is and now with all the background of the working of Jesus, he asked them first, who are the crowds saying that I am? And they gave him an answer. And they say to Jesus, some say that you're John the Baptist. That's who, in the previous verse, uh, verses, that's who Herod thought that Jesus was, a, a resurrected John the Baptist. He was another example of who is this guy. Others say that he's uh, Elijah. Elijah was just taken up in a chariot and it was prophesied that he would come back before the Messiah would come. So some were saying that. Others were saying that he was an old prophet risen again. And so for sure we know one thing, that Jesus was definitively different than anything that they've ever seen before. He wasn't in any category where he would be seen as normal. His work would see, be seen as just something that he was doing on his own. Even the masses of crowds had to admit there is something going on here. And we don't fully know what is going on but something radical is happening. They're all wondering and they're all trying to figure out and they have all different 
ideas and understandings. But you notice in verse 20, Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? What is he doing there? See, he's taking all the popular opinions of the day, and then he brings to each individual the importance of their own personal, correct understanding and identification of who he is. So he's, he's saying, this is your true test. This is your, your moment. Because there are a lot of different opinions, and there are a lot of different opinions about Jesus today. And all of those different opinions really don't matter because they are all subjective and the truth of God is objective and unchanging. Jesus is who He is and that will not change. The question is, who do you say that Jesus is? That question will determine your life here, now, and most importantly, your whole eternity. Who do you say that Jesus is? And Peter gives him the answer, and he says, the. You might want to circle the, because that's not one of, it's not plural, it's not many, it's the, in other words, the one and only, no more, the Christ of God. And Matthew's account in Matthew 16 tells us that flesh and blood did not reveal that to Peter, but the Father in heaven revealed that. So the truth of the understanding of who Jesus was was given to Peter by God the Father, and he made that statement, the proclamation of who Christ was. This was so radical, and you know what? Extremely divisive. Do you know the truth is extremely divisive. Do you know, maybe for Peter, if he were to think about it more, it would have been hard for him to say that. I think he blurted it out, knowing Peter's personality. And once he blurted it out, the reality of that statement would put him in a different category than every other person. It would put believers, first Peter making that statement, and then those who would get a hold of that statement and believe it also, it would put them in a whole different category. It would separate them. But the reality is, that was the truth. He made a statement of truth. What does he mean when he says, the 
Christ, he was saying that Jesus was and is the one in whom was prophesied to come the one and only God in the flesh that would come and take away the sins of man once and for all. Christ, the actual word Christ in Greek is Christos, which means anointed. In Hebrew, it's Mashiach, which is the anointed one, which comes from a thing where they would smear. Mashiach means smear, oil, on someone separating them apart for special services. And the Jews would know that the Messiah would be one and only, not many, just one that would come at a particular time. In fact, what we're reading here, and I have it right here for you, actually for me, but for you too. So right here, I don't know if you could see that, but here are 351 Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Things that were said before anybody could have any real idea. Things that were said because of the words that God put in their heart and that were recorded for us to understand that are un adulterated truth that Jesus is the coming one that God had told us about for thousands of years and Jesus has fulfilled over 351 prophecies about who he is. To make no mistake about it. Some of those prophecies are so specific things about the cross that nobody even knew about the cross. You read Psalm 53, Psalm 22. You read about a suffering servant, a suffering Messiah. You read about a description of a cross before the cross was even invented as a way of torture. You see the Old Testament speak about a seed of woman in Genesis chapter 13, and if you know anything about biology, you know that women don't have seeds. But he would come as the seed of a woman. What are we to make of that? Well, many prophecies after that tell us that he was going to come from a virgin birth. We read that Satan would bruise his head. Speaking about the cross, we read about his bodily Ascension, that he would be the seed of Abraham, that he would be the Lamb of God, the great I Am, the mediator between God and man, the resurrection. We read about the crucifixion, his humiliation, that he would be forsaken because of the sins of others, that his hands and feet would be pierced, but his body would not be broken, no bones were broken. 
we read about he would be Emmanuel or God with us, God in the flesh, that he would be born in Bethlehem. And of course, I could go on with hundreds and hundreds of more. And the point is, who do you say that Jesus is? Do you say he is the Christ? the Messiah, God in the flesh, the creator of all and the sustainer of all, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, the one in whom has paid the price for our sins so we can be forgiven and go to heaven. Is that our Messiah? There are many false messiahs. There are many false gods. There are many who ascribe some sort of worth to Jesus as a prophet only, or someone who became a God, not came into the world as the eternal God, the creator God, all different sort of things. And it all now comes and visits our laps with the question, who do you say that Jesus is? Verse 21, story takes a twist. twist that we find in Matthew 16 that Peter did not like as he makes that confession he still had his own understanding of the ministry of the Messiah Jesus says in verse 21 that he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one tell what tell the who he is don't fully re reveal it because his time had not come. It was going to be for an appointed time, particularly after his death and resurrection, that then the message of who Jesus was and what he did, this is what we call the gospel, that it would be taken out by the disciples and spread to the whole world. But it's not time yet. In verse 22, he says, don't tell everybody that yet, that the Son of Man must, number one, must suffer many things. So this is the turn, this is where our excitement about who Jesus is might start taking off when we realize He's the Messiah, He's going to fix everything immediately, He's going to conquer the world, and that was the... Jewish eschatology or the Jewish understanding of the Messiah that when he came that he would conquer the world at that time and set up his rule and reign on earth at that time. And so Jesus says something that seems very strange unless you understand one of the attributes of God is not only that He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, but that He is love too. And now as we begin to see that love of God in action, where God actually became man and took on flesh, and the degree of lowering Himself cannot be measured of an eternal God who created everything, who has no beginning and no ending came into time, space, and matter which he created. 
the lowering of that cannot be measured. The humility, the meekness of him becoming a human being. And not only becoming a human being, but a human being that would come into the world to suffer. Gods don't suffer. The Greek gods don't suffer. The Roman god, that view of God, was not on anybody's radar. Yet, the Old Testament prophesied about a suffering Savior. But this is where wires can get crossed in our brain. A suffering God doesn't make sense. An all-powerful God that would come and allow men who had no power over him to forcefully take him to the cross. Forcefully is not a good word because he voluntarily did that. Violently take him to the cross. Why would an all-powerful God allow that to happen? It's because of love. So not only do we have an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present creator and sustainer of everything that exists, but that God loves you and I so much that he is willing to lower himself, not only to the point of becoming a human, but becoming despised and rejected, which is he is prophesying here, to lower himself, to be humiliated, and to the point where the Bible tells us that he was even looked at as a, a worm a scum of the earth. Why would he do that? Because this all-powerful God loves you. And he loves me. Now, Jesus makes his own prophecy, which is in line with the Old Testament prophecies, 315 of them. This prophecy is a another way that he's telling his disciples that in real time they will see him make a statement and they will watch that statement happen, something only God can do. So this is him prophesying his own death and his own resurrection and the timing of it. So how confident are we that the Bible is true, that the account of Jesus is true? Well, One big part of it, in addition to the statistical improbability of 351 prophecies being fulfilled by one man, which is a statistical improbability. Let's throw all that out. Eyewitnesses. Here we have the disciples described, and Peter particularly is coming into the forefront. Peter, as we know from from this point on, he didn't do too well when Jesus was taken. He didn't do too well with the understanding of the suffering. He ran away when Jesus was taken. He didn't want to deal with the the fact that Jesus had to suffer. That was a very hard thing. His understanding was was not quite there yet. And so to to hear that and to understand that, he he actually in uh, Matthew chapter 16 rejected Jesus and said, The Lord forbid that you suffer, that you go to the cross. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He couldn't understand that, couldn't bring himself to believe that. But he was an eyewitness of one that after this statement that we see here in our text, 
after it actually happened, Peter went from a denier to one who died for his faith. That's evidence and proof. These are eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ. So, so Peter and the disciples hear this, that I must suffer many things. And not only that, number two, be rejected. Be rejected by who? By the elders, chief priests, and the scribes. These are or were the religious establishment. These were the people who were supposed to know about the Messiah, were supposed to receive him, were supposed to usher him in. And so there's another truth that, that would be hard to accept. But in a, another truth that was prophesied and foretold about. And Jesus now is saying it again and repeating it in real time. And he's telling them, hey, you might not understand all this, but you're going to watch it happens. And after it all happens, then you'll get in. And not only would he be killed, but this is the part they seem to sort of just, their minds were so preoccupied with the first part, but the, the, the fourth thing that he would say, he would suffer, he'd be rejected, he'd be killed, but then he said, I'd be raised again. And not only does he say that, what does he say next? The third day. He's giving all the disciples this because they were watching all this unfold from the beginning to the end so they can tell us this is exactly what happened. And we, he told us that. We saw it. We saw him before. He told us that. We saw it after. And that's why we now are willing to give our life for this man called Jesus. He did raise on the third day. There were over 500 witnesses that attested to the fact that he was seen alive, seen dead, and seen alive again on the, guess what, third day. So what does this all mean for us? It means that there is a difference between knowing about God knowing information about Him, knowing scriptures, and knowing Him as your personal Lord and Savior. There is a difference. And so the question for us here this morning is do we know Jesus? the God of the Bible, the God who came and died for our sins. The God who was our substitute, the God who took our place, and the one who now, with arms wide open, is inviting all to come to receive Him as their Lord and Savior. And this has to be done by every individual. This is not group think. And every individual, because every individual will stand and give account for this one thing. Have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Not anything else. This one thing 
This one question, who do we say that He is? And if He is all that He says He is, and there's no other option, it's either He is or He's not. We don't have the liberty because of the exclusive statements that Jesus made to have some other version of Him. All those versions are wrong. Jesus clearly revealed who He was. And all of the totality of Scripture told us who He was. So He is either Messiah or He's not. And if He is, this is the most amazing news that you and I could ever hear because that means that the God who created everything has lowered Himself to take our place in judgment on the cross for our sins that although we have sinned, Jesus has come to wash away our sins by being the substitute and taking our place. So the only options are, are we in Christ or are we not? Is our name written in the Lamb's Book of Life or is it not? Jesus is who He said He is. There's not anything in the world that you and I can point to that gives us more evidence or more reason to believe anything else. The only thing left then is will we receive Him as our Lord and Savior. And if you have done that, this is a great day. You woke up this morning knowing whatever happens in this world, your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purposes. That that sin you committed this morning had been already washed away. The sin you're going to commit tomorrow has been covered by the blood of Jesus. And now we can walk with Him, enjoying His presence now and forever. And so we're going to take communion this morning. And I just ask that this morning, if you are not sure about your relationship status with Jesus Christ, that you would settle that issue right now and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. How do you do that? You acknowledge your need for Him because you recognize that you are a sinner. The Bible says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the payment or wages of sin is death and that means separation from God but God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners Christ died for us and whoever would believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and rose from the dead that they would be saved simply said, you have to make a decision to commit your life to Jesus Christ. 
He'll do the rest. And when one does that, all of heaven is rejoicing for one sinner who repents of their sins and turns to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for your word. In a time that we live in where it's so hard to discern truth and so hard to understand what things, uh, the things that are going on, you've given us your word and it explains everything. Most importantly, it explains how to be right with you. And so, Lord, as we enter into this time of communion, I, I pray for the body of Christ. I pray for those here who are believers. I pray this morning that we'd take a moment to examine our hearts and examine our walks and just come back to a place where you are the most important thing to us. You are our priority. We pray, Lord, for those who don't know you that right now that they would receive your invitation to be forgiven of their sins. We pray that salvation would occur here this morning. We pray that as you minister and convict their hearts of sin, that they would cry out to you and receive you as their Lord and Savior. And so, Lord, may you be glorified. And in this time of communion, may we remember what you've done for us, what you've given to us in giving your life and taking our place, just as communion represents for us, Lord. And so why don't you all just take a time, keep your eyes closed, just commune with God. The ushers are going to come forward. They're going to pass out the communion elements, and I just ask that you'd hang on to the elements, and we're going to take it all together. But let this just be a great time of reflection and fellowship with the Lord. Don't waste these last few minutes that we have, and allow God to speak to your heart. we hold these communion elements, it's a reminder of the body of Christ, which is the bread, and the blood of Christ, which is the cup. And when we think about what Jesus did, and also then him being an example for us, what we find is that he was fully surrendered to the Father's will. And that's why we hold these elements. Because he wasn't pushing away. He wasn't rejecting. He wasn't fighting. He wasn't resisting. And because of that, we see the love of Christ that's demonstrated. That's how we know the love of God, what he did on the cross. But then for us, as we hold these elements... It's also a reminder, as Christ surrendered to the Father's will, when we take the, these communion elements, it's a reminder that we are 
to submit and surrender to God's will as well. We aren't to resist and push back. But God wants to beautify His love inside of us. And the Bible tells us that His love is perfected by our obedience. And so as we take these communion elements, let's also remember to surrender our full life to God and let Him have His way with us. Can we say that? Lord, have your way. Have your way with me. And so that's the practical aspect of living for Jesus. And so this this bread, it reminds us not only that Jesus took on a body, but that he was willing to give his body over to fulfill Old Testament prophecy about a burnt offering when an offering would be brought to God the whole offering would be consumed and we are to bring our whole self to God and let him have his way with us and so let's take uh, partake of the bread together remembering the body of Christ and of course the blood of Christ which washes away all of our sin. Let's partake of the cup together. Amen. Let's all stand. We're going to sing one last song. If anybody would like prayer this morning, feel free to come up as we're singing this last song. We'll have our prayer team up front. God bless you guys and go in the joy and the peace of what Jesus has done for you. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.